Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to go to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Well, let me encourage you to keep uh, your Bible open to that page, page 303. Thank you, Annie, for reading. And with the Bible open, let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that as we've been looking at this book of 1 Samuel, written so many hundreds of years ago over these past months, uh, we have seen again and again how relevant it is to our life today. We thank you for that. And we pray that that would be the same again today. Indeed, we ask you to speak very deeply in the deepest part of our being, that we may become more the people we should be, drawn to yourself and more uh, amazed at your great kindness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 31 is a chapter of endings. It is the last chapter of 1 Samuel, as you can see. It ends the book and our series, and it records the end of the life of King Saul and his sons, and many more Israelites as well. It is a chapter that is both tragic and desperately frustrating. It's frustrating because the book ends as the book began. And the book began with Israel at war with the Philistines in chapter 4. By the end of the book, nothing has changed. In fact, if anything, it's worse. In the last chapter, we see that Israel is not only at war with the Philistines, but they are overrun by the enemy, seemingly deserted by God, and under the shadow of death. All who follow King Saul have a tragic end in this chapter. This book, as we've seen, is all about the search for a leader. And as we come to chapter 31, the big lesson of the book is that if we follow the wrong leader, if we look to the wrong person to lead us through life, if we follow the world and remember that uh, Saul represented the world, 
then we will get nowhere in life. Worse, we'll face death without God and without any hope. As we witness the death of King Saul in this chapter, it should take us to the end of our lives. Uh, Do you ever think about the end of your own life? Have you ever imagined yourself on your deathbed with just weeks or days to live? Many people, it seems, are too scared to go there in their minds, but let me encourage you to do it. Project yourself forward to the end of your life and imagine yourself looking back over your life, asking yourself honestly if your life was a success, if you made the most of it. See, disconcerting and unsettling as that may sound, I encourage you to do it because many, many people find themselves doing just that at the end of their lives, but desperately by then they often feel it's too late to change anything. Through the past 24 years of pastoral ministry, I've sat and talked with many people at the end of their lives. It goes without saying that it's a hard and desperately sad and emotionally draining part of my job, but it is also a privilege. And every time I do it, I have to say it is a huge wake-up call for me. It reminds me what really matters. I think of my own mum, riddled with cancer and only months from death, and I'll never forget her saying to me, Paul, as I look back through my life, I feel that I've done nothing with it. I could tell you of many more conversations like that. Each conversation has been deeply personal and unique, but one of the striking similarities I've noticed is that so many of the things that take our time and energy day by day are not the things we care about at the end of our lives. As Harold Kushner, the prominent American rabbi, wrote, no one ever said on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at work. And I've never heard anyone uh, at the end of their life talk about the size of their real estate or their bank balance. The things that so grab our hearts and drive us through the everyday hustle and bustle of life mean very little to us at the end of our lives. Our jobs, where we live, how much money we have, none of those things seem to matter in the cold light of day at the end of life. You want to know what you think about on the deathbed? This has been my experience as I've met with people. People want to know if their family are going to be okay. They want to know if they've made a success of life, if they've lived a good life. Often people want to put wrongs right, repair broken relationships. Usually I'm brought in because they want to talk about whether they're right with God and they want to know about life beyond the grave. Those are the important things. In a word, at the end of life, we want to be safe. That was the thing we were thinking about last week. Will my family be safe? Am I going to be safe in eternity? Well, last week in chapter 30, we saw that while following the Christ doesn't seem safe, ultimately, do you remember we saw it is the safest and most secure life to have and to live? This week, we see the contrast in chapter 31. How following the world seems to offer us safety along with material comfort and status, but it's not safe at all. Do you remember we've seen over these last weeks how Saul, King Saul, represents what it means to follow the world. Here we'll see it's not safe being with him. He's not the leader to follow. He can't deliver. As we arrive at chapter 31, John Woodhouse makes a very strong case that chapter 31 is happening at exactly the same time as chapter 30. If this was made into a great Hollywood movie, I think what would happen is you'd see, uh, you'd see David and all his men fighting um, where they're fighting in chapter 30. And it would keep flipping to chapter 31 where you'd see Saul being overrun by the Philistines. And just every time you see David succeeding, you'd see Saul falling. And it would keep flipping back and forth. 
just as David is victoriously defeating the Amalekites and rescuing all his people in chapter 30. At that very moment, chapter 31, verse 1, the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And that word fleeing is used in both chapters. At the precise time the Israelites were fleeing from the Philistines. So do you see it there? Chapter 30, verse 17, the Amalekites were fleeing from David. The word fleeing should take us back to the beginning of the book and to chapter 4 when Israel fled from the Philistines. Back then, Israel's failed leader and his sons were killed. And it led to Israel's demand for a king to go out and fight their battles for them. They wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to be like the world. Give us a king, they said to their God. And now here we are at the end of the book and the king they asked for has failed in leading them. And here we see that king and his sons being killed in battle. Israel's desire for a king, the desire to be like the nations around them has done them no good whatsoever. It's a good reminder for us as individuals and indeed, I believe, for the wider church in this land as they cry out to be like the world, that it will do us no good whatsoever. It will end in disaster. Well, in the verses that follow in chapter 31, firstly, we see to follow the world is to lose your life. Verses one to six. Look at verse two. The Philistines pressed hard against Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua. I see this desperately sad section. All the sons of Saul that are with him at this moment lose their life. It is again a stark contrast to chapter 30, where we saw last week in verse 18 that David rescued everything and everyone that were with him, that were his. Here in chapter 31, everyone connected to Saul dies, including Saul himself. Verse 3, the fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. And here's the summary. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day everyone dies it's a tragic section and if the death of everyone connected to Saul isn't bad enough what makes this even more devastating is what is not written what we do not hear from Saul I was going to say do you notice what's not written of course there's loads of things that aren't written But it becomes conspicuous by its absence when we compare Saul to David. Chapter 31 with chapter 30. See, in chapter 30 last week, when David was at rock bottom with all his family taken from him, uh, with his men turning against him, in verse 6 we read, David found strength in the Lord his God. Chapter 30, verse 6. And then in the next two verses, David turns to the Lord in prayer. But here in chapter 31, Saul is desperate with nowhere to turn. He's at the end of his life. But he does not cry out to the Lord. As far as we know, it doesn't even cross his mind to find strength in God. Of course, it's entirely consistent with the trajectory of Saul's life. As a young king, he didn't obey the Lord. And since that first moment of disobedience, his relationship with the Lord has deteriorated. And now when he needs the Lord the most, when he's close to death, he doesn't turn to him. 
Earlier this year, I, I got a call asking me to go and visit a man who was dying. It was a couple of months ago. His family were all gathered around him. He was still conscious. He could still speak. But he only had hours to live. The, the medical staff had told him that. And he was frightened, which is why the family asked me to go and visit him in his hospital bed. I arrived at knowing that I was meeting with a man who, in just a few hours, would be face to face with the almighty God. It is a remarkable situation to walk into. I also knew that this man had spent his life arguing against the existence of God. I'd never met him before, but I knew people here uh, who knew him and they told me of him. Rather naively, as I drove over to the hospital, I thought that in this last hour he might listen to the gracious invitation of the God who loves us despite our rejection of him. I prayed on my journey over to the hospital and I called others and asked them to pray too. I really thought that faced with death, this man might cry out to God as I told him the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But desperately, he refused to do that. I told him about the God who'd proved his existence in Jesus Christ, who'd shown his great loving kindness in dying for people who rejected him. And after 45 minutes with that poor man and with him listening, but refusing to accept that there was a God who would accept him and embrace him, I left the the hospital at about 5 or 5.30 in the evening. And the next day I woke up, I received a message to say that in the early hours of the morning he died. As far as I know, he'd still refuse to cry out to God. That is Saul here. I've got to say, until that most recent experience of a couple of months ago, this would have seemed almost unbelievable to me. I mean, I, like, I know that people die without Christ, I know that, but when you know you're going to die, and when, you know, as Saul did, he knew about his God, I'd have thought that anybody about to face death would cry out to God. But now I've experienced it. And the truth is, having rejected God all our lives, some people will not cry out to God even when there is nowhere else to turn. And so I'd plead with anyone here who hasn't sorted things out with their God. Anyone who hasn't investigated seriously whether there is a God, if that's your question. I know there are some who come here week in and week out like this. I would plead with you to address it now. Don't even put it off till after the summer. We don't know when our time will come as the 10th anniversary of the 7-7 bombings of reminding us this week. And I was there in London when that was happening. Friends of mine were coming to see me. They were on the, the tube network when it was happening. I remember it well. And it reminds us we can be traveling to work and our time can come. Or as the terrorist attack on the beach in Tunisia demonstrated, we can be on holiday and suddenly be face to face with our maker. We don't know when it will be and we don't even know if we'll have time to respond. If we've ignored God all our lives, it might be that even if we do have time to respond in our darkest hour, we might not turn to the Lord. That's all. To follow the world is to lose your life. Secondly, to follow the world is to be stripped of everything. This is verses 7 to 10. Let me read from verse 7. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armour and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news 
in the temple of their idols and among their people. You see, verse 8, they stripped the dead. Verse 9, they stripped off Saul's armour. They really stripped him of everything. Uh, Saul's armour is figured throughout this book. It's symbolic of his kingship. Remember when faced with the Philistine giant Goliath, Saul unwittingly offered his armour to the young David. It was a mark of his weakness. Saul couldn't defeat the enemy, so he's ready to take off his armour. And then do you remember the night before Saul died? Back in chapter 28, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. As he went to the witch of Endor, Saul replaced his royal garb with other garments, we're told in chapter 28, verse 8. See, he knew at that point that he was disobeying God and he wanted to hide the fact that he was king. In disobedience, he removed the symbol of his kingship. Now Saul's royal armour was removed one last time and forever. His kingship was over. And with his kingship went his dignity. He lost everything. Verse 9, they cut off his head and stripped off his armour and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news. The word messengers there in verse 9 is not in the original. So it is very possible that having cut off his head, it was actually Saul's head that was sent throughout the land to show that he was dead. It's a gruesome thought and it seems likely to me when you look down to verse 10 and read they put his armour in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. You see, when you put all that together, you've got everything. Verse 10, the armour. Verse 10, his body. Verse 9, his head. Carted and paraded all over the land. It's a gruesome detail, but it's there to tell us that Saul lost everything. Not just his life, but his dignity too. It's it's really fascinating. The very thing he was worried about in verse 4 came to him beyond death. Remember in verse 4, he wanted his armour bearer to kill him so that he wouldn't be abused by the Philistines. Now we see that in his death, he is abused by the Philistines. His head paraded around the country, his headless corpse impaled on a wall... He was a public object of horror and disgust. He was completely humiliated, stripped of everything. Again, it is in stark contrast to David. As Saul is losing everything, do you see in chapter 30, verse 19, David is rescuing everything and everyone. And please note, Saul really did lose everything. See, any self-respecting Israelite would know that to have your body hung out for exposure like this was a declaration of being under the curse of God. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Here then is a king, a fallen king, dying under the curse of God. It's a terrible end to Saul's life. But surprisingly, it's not quite the end of the book. There is one final scene. And it tells us thirdly that to follow the world is to fall from a great height Look again at verse 11. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed throughout the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. The significant thing about these last verses is that it was the people of Jabesh Gilead who stepped in to give Saul a dignified burial. 
It should remind us of chapter 11 when King Saul delivered the people of Gilead from their enemies. The people of Gilead had never forgotten that that, and, and they were so grateful they risked their own lives to give Saul a proper burial. It was a fine and courageous thing to do on the part of the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead. But it's here to show us just how far Saul has fallen. From being a great deliverer back in chapter 11, delivering God's people from the enemy, here he now is defeated, killed and humiliated, unable to defeat the enemy. And the detail that convinces me that this is the point is there in verse 13. Do you see, they buried Saul under a tamarisk tree. The last time we heard of Saul and a tamarisk tree was back in chapter 22, verse 6. Then Saul, it seemed, had it all. Do you remember chapter 22, verse 6? He was surrounded by his servants. He had a great army to protect him. Saul was seated under the tamarisk tree. Back then, he didn't seem to have a care in the world. Now, chapter 31, he is being buried under a tamarisk tree. See, look back on Saul's life and you could see moments of great victory with Jabesh Gilead and great luxury around the tamarisk tree. At times, his life appeared to be so successful. At times, who wouldn't have wanted to be in Saul's shoes? We don't want to be in his shoes now, do we? Here is a man who's fallen so far, now unable to save his people, unable to save his own life and under the curse of God, During the summer, when the sun is shining, I often look at people in parks and on beaches and on holiday, looking relaxed. They don't appear to have a care in the world. Life appears to be perfect. Look, it's an illusion. Some people know it's an illusion when they're on holiday. Many people on holiday are escaping a life of trouble and stress and debt and worry back home. But even if life back home is fine, it's still an illusion to think the life is safe and carefree. It isn't. When people are out in the sunshine enjoying life apparently without a care in the world, I sometimes think of them coming to the end of their lives. I imagine these people having barely given God a second thought and I'm terrified for them. Some years back, Caroline and I were on a beach in Italy and this thought came to me and I said to Caroline, you know, most of these people, I'm guessing, don't know the Lord Jesus at all. She was terrified I was going to start evangelising up and down the beach. It's what I felt like doing. At the end of their lives, as they look back on life, they might just find themselves agonising over what they did with their lives. Even worse, they will face death under the curse of God. The end of 1 Samuel shows us the utter hopelessness of following the world. The foolishness of taking the lead from anyone other than God's anointed, the Christ We look at Saul and we see how he couldn't save his people, how he couldn't even save himself. Why would we want to follow him? And as we look at Saul, it reminds us of another who was overrun by his enemies. Another who was abused, whose body was stripped not just of his clothes, but even of his flesh. He too was humiliated as his body was hung up on a piece of wood. Unlike Saul, he cried out to God. He cried out words of agonising pain, of being rejected by God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
After his death, there were some who came. They came at considerable risk to themselves to take care of his body and give it an honourable burial, just as happened to Saul. But unlike Saul, this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, died to take the curse of God upon himself so that all who put their trust in him could face death and judgment with confidence. See, Saul died for nothing. His death achieved nothing. But the death of the Lord Jesus achieved something wonderful so that all who put their trust in him and live for him can face their own death with confidence. As I close, let me tell you about Tracy. I doubt any of you know her. I knew her years ago from two churches back. I sat with her as she died. I'd got to know her because she was a member of the congregation. She'd become a good friend along with the rest of her family. To anyone who didn't know Tracy, she was a very ordinary person. I thought she was a wonderful person. But if you didn't know her, she was quite ordinary. She wasn't especially wealthy. Uh, She didn't have a career. Uh, She gave her life to being a housewife and a mother, although I thought that was a very good thing to do. But, you know, if you looked on, you wouldn't think special, special of her. As she reflected on her life, she told me of mistakes she'd made. She knew she hadn't done everything well, but she knew she was forgiven of the mistakes she'd made. She hadn't done everything she might have done with her life, but she knew that she'd made the most important decision in the world. She turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, quite late on in life, actually. And she'd also told her friends and her family about the Lord Jesus. As a result, her husband and her son became Christians. Wonderfully, she knew as we sat there and talked about the end of life that they were safe, her family. She knew that she was safe, safe in the shadow of the Lord, safe for eternity. For us, it's the end of the book of 1 Samuel, for now. And the end of the book projects us forward to the ends of our lives. And it asks us, are you following the world or are you following the Christ? And please, that is a question to the Christian as well as the unbeliever here. You see, if you're anything like me as a Christian, I often find my heart being drawn away from Christ. I call myself a Christian, but I find myself not fully following him and finding the world so very attractive. So it's not just a question for the unbeliever when I say, are you following the Christ? Who or what has the affection of your heart? The end of our lives, if we'll allow ourselves to imagine it, tells us it only makes sense to give ourselves, our heart, our soul, all our affections to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who cares for us enough that you will take us to difficult places in our minds, that you will say some things that are uncomfortable, but you do it because you care for us. We think this morning may have been one of those mornings when you've brought us face to face with death, but we thank you that you've done it giving us a chance to assess life now. 
And we pray for all of us here. We pray for some who are drifting away from you. And we pray that in your great kindness, today you'll drag them back and that they will see the need to put the Lord Jesus first above everything. For others of us here, many of us, and I include myself in this, who are Christians, but who find our hearts wandering. We thank you that you've spoken to us this morning and we pray you'd help us again to see that there is only one sensible response. There is only one sensible leader to follow, the Lord Jesus. And we pray for those here who aren't yet yours. Thank you that they've come. And we pray you'd give them the courage to look at their life honestly and to turn to the Lord Jesus even this day knowing that there is no greater one to follow than him. And we ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.